When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This month, we tackle The Mist. In the manager's apartment, I found a large battery-operated multiband radio. In the back of it, a flat antenna wire led out through the window. I turned it on, switched over to BAT, Fiddle with the tuning dial, with the squelch knob, and still got nothing but static or dead silence. And then, at the far end of the AM band, just as I was reaching for the knob to turn it off, I thought I heard, or dreamed I heard, one single word. There was no more. I listened for an hour, but there was no more. If there was that one word, it came through some minute shift in the damping mist, an infinitesimal break that immediately closed again. One word. I've, I've got to get some sleep. If I can sleep and not be haunted until daybreak by the faces of Ollie Weeks and Mrs. Carmody and Norm the Bag Boy. And by Steph's face, half shadowed by the wide brim of her sun hat. There's a restaurant here, a typical Hojo restaurant with a dining room and a long horseshoe-shaped lunch counter. I'm going to leave these pages on the counter and perhaps someday someone will find them and read them. One word. If I only really heard it. If only. I'm going to bed now. But first I'm going to kiss my son and whisper two words in his ear. Against the dreams that may come, you know? Two words that sound a bit alike. One of them is Hartford. The other is Hope. Welcome back, fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Derek and Steve coming at you from South Philadelphia. It's so soon. We're back so soon. Yeah, less than a month since it's our insane. last. Yes, less than a month. Usually it's about a month, month and a half. Between. I mean, I could get used to this. I mean, I could too. I don't know about you. But here's the problem. We just have to read much faster. Stephen King books <laughs> are usually a lot bigger than The Mist. Oh, this was so quick. Here we are. We are here with The Mist. I just want to say we put out a poll on Twitter. Yes. We put out a few books. The Mist was the... I think crushed the poll, right? I mean, yeah, it did. The The second runner-up was The Stand, uh, but it was like a good 8 or 9% away, so yeah. And I am so glad. I was really zeroing in on The Stand, and I really wanted to do The Stand next because I just felt like it was time. We're digging into these big books. Oh, yeah. Many have argued that The Stand is Stephen King's best book. I really wanted to dig my uh, my claws into it, my tentacles from the mist into it, if you will. <laughs> and I have to say, I, I am really happy with my journey reading oh, the mist. Yeah. Oh, it's phenomenal. 
So here we are. We're back. Wheel of Ka. We're going to talk about The Mist. Everyone that hit us up on Twitter for it, about it, voted in the poll, talked to us about it. Thank you. We have a Twitter handle, at The Wheel of Ka. You can always hit us up, at The Midnight Myth. You can always find me and Steve. We're always commenting with our personal Twitter accounts. Oh, yeah. Oh, this will make Laurel happy. We have a website, www.midnightmyth.com. We yes. have a Patreon. We have a merch store. We do blog from time to time. Great. Give us all the five-star ratings and reviews. Tell all of your friends. Tell all of your enemies. We want to grow the podcast. All that being said. I really love how much you hate the marketing portion of this. Like, it's always funny that you do it, too, because you hate it so much. You're just like, okay, yeah, follow us, like, subscribe, whatever, on the Twits, on the Twitter. Do whatever you need to do. Can we talk about this book now? I mean, it is a very important part of a podcast. I love that you also, like, throw Laurel under the bus. Yeah, this will make Laurel happy. Here's our website. Gosh. <laughs> our stupid <laughs> website. My God. Yeah. No, it is important. We It is important to do that. I'm yeah. just not very good at it, and I want to... I'm so chomping at the bit to talk about the mist that I, I just, think you did a great job. Oh, thank you. You're I, welcome. You know what? I appreciate I that. I think you did a great I'll job. I'll accept that compliment. Thank you. Let's start everything with the mist. But before, <sighs> actually, Steve, man, how you feeling? You know, today I'm tired. If I'm going to be completely honest, I'm tired, uh, but I'm good. It's, it's not a bad tired. It's just like physically tired. I, uh, well, you know, I've been training Muay Thai kickboxing for a year. So I did that this morning and then moved a friend, a longtime friend, old roommate. Um, and that was great. And then I came home and recorded vocals and stuff for Mythic Thunder Loot, the other podcast do you that want, I'm doing. Do you want to give a quick plug? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so plug, anybody, plug uh, if, if you're a fan of Dungeons and Dragons, if you're a fan of musical theater, if you're a fan of rock music, or if you're a fan of all three of those things like I am, you should check out Mythic Thunder Loot. Uh, it's a D&D podcast musical that I, uh, that I perform in and, and helped create. Uh, and you can find it on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. You can go to mythicthunderloot.com or pa- patreon.com slash mythicthunderloot if you'd like to give us your money and allow us to create more episodes. You know, I got to say, I really loved the first two episodes of, Myth- of Mythic Thunderloot. Oh, thank you. I thought it was completely unique. There's there's a lot of podcasts that talk about and do D&D to some degree or, or variety, and a lot of good ones, but none that have really captured my imagination. The idea that it is D&D that then breaks into rock music. <laughs> and, and some, like, classic musical theater stuff, too. And you're all just so talented in it. Thank you. Like, just you. everybody in it is so good. If you didn't know this Midnight Myth listeners... Steve is not only a fantastic drummer, his singing voice is angelic. Oh, oh stop it. And, and he can do multiple <laughs> styles of singing. It's not just like I'm good at the one thing. He can do it all. Steve oh, thank is you. a true renaissance man. No, please stop, stop, stop it. Anyway, let's... Anything else? Yeah, Mythic Thunderloot, check it out. <laughs> Let's start talking about, about the mist. About the mist. Ugh. Do, right, you, do so, you want the background first? Or no, you have to do the recap. Yeah, let me, I'll read the back and do a really quick recap. How do I not know what the hell we do by now? <laughs> it's okay. We've only been doing it for a year and a half. In the wake of a destructive main summer thunderstorm, an impenetrable mist descends from the direction of a local military facility and infiltrates the small town of Bridgeton, Maine. 
David Drayton and his son Billy are swept into a living nightmare as unnatural and violent forces concealed by the mist begin to emerge, wreaking havoc in their wake. Now trapped in the local supermarket with a ragtag group of survivors, David unexpectedly faces a growing threat from within, one that promises to challenge the boundaries of sanity itself as humanity makes its last stand against unholy destruction. In this horrifying mist, hearing is seeing and believing. What you're about to hear, you'll never forget. <sighs> the mist is about a mist, as it says. It comes after a dangerous snowstorm. Thunderstorm. Thunderstorm, pardon me. And David Drayton and his son, Billy, as well as his neighbor, Mr. Norton, Mr. Brenton Norton, get trapped in a supermarket. Mm -hmm. They're there to get supplies when the mist comes. Quickly, it's established that the mist is full of monsters and three distinct group identities emerge in this supermarket. The first is David himself with his sort of, I'd say, rugged individualists will do what we got to do to survive. Yeah, group. like pragmatists. And they accept the reality of the monsters. Right. Then there's the Flat Earth Society that is by the lawyer, Mr. Norton, from New York mm -hmm. at this lake town. He is a summer vacationer who denies that there are actual monsters, and he leads a group of people out into the mist. Spoiler alert, they all end up dead. And then there is the religious fanatic group of Mrs. Carmody, Ugh. who says that this is divine retribution for the sins of humanity, and that the only way to appease God and these monsters is through expiation. You know, I don't love saying this about women. I really don't. But she is nuts. And she demands a blood oh, sacrifice. She is insane. Lots of amazing action. Lots of great scenes of them fighting monsters. David and a small group, including Ollie Weeks, the store assistant manager. Oh, Ollie. Oh, Ollie. Ollie Weeks. Decide that they are going to break out, get for their car. As they do so, Mrs. Kermody, using her religious fervor, demands that David's son, Billy, and his newfound companion slash lover, Amanda, are the blood sacrifices. Ali then shoots Mrs. Carmody. They escape. Most of the people get killed en route to the car. And David, with Amanda and Billy, make their way out of the town. The book ends. It's entirely written from David's first-person perspective, with David in a restaurant with Billy, leaving this pile of papers, wondering where they will go from here. They have about X amount of miles in gas, and the radio tunes, he thinks he hears the word Hartford. So maybe if they can make it to Hartford, they'll all be alive. And that's the book. Once again, wonderful job. Love the recaps. I have I a really do. the recaps, don't I? I really do. So we uh, dive into some background here? Yeah, give us the background. When was this published in terms of Stephen King canon? Okay, so uh, the publication date originally was 1980. Uh... It was included as a part of the Dark Forces anthology, which I've actually never heard of. It's the first time I've heard of it. Uh, and then an edited version was added in 1985 in the collection Skeleton Crew, um, which is where most people know the book from originally. Uh, what, I f what I think is really interesting is that apparently, according to Wikipedia, which, by the way, these are where I get my, ba my backgrounds from most of the time. All right, so take it as you will. But I mean, I think it's true. It says King was inspired to write The Mist by a trip to his local supermarket following a horrific thunderstorm 
during which he imagined prehistoric animals and giant insects besieging the building. So, like, King is out, and apparently the story goes that he's looking for hot dog buns. Like, he just went to the supermarket for hot dog buns, and he's like, you know what would make a good book? Prehistoric animals flying deadly insects while we're all trapped in a supermarket. As much as I love Stephen King, and I really do, the guy is fucked up. He just, he, look, look, man, there's no two ways to put it. The, the dude is fucked up. I mean, who walks into their supermarket for real? Who walks into the supermarket and is like, you know what would make a good book? Nobody but Stephen King. He's a genius. Uh, the Miss was nominated for a World Fantasy Award and a Locust Award in 1981. And critics have considered it to be one of King's iconic works and a classic in the, in the genre. Excuse me. Some people, um, apparently a lot of critics lamented the superficial explanation of the mist's nature, which, hello, read The Dark Tower. I don't really, it's the way I would explain it. Like, okay, you haven't read The Dark Tower. You're not used to Stephen, Stephen King being supernatural outside of horror, which I understand. Um, but a lot of people were pleased with the cinematic presentation, which we watched literally last night, which we're not going to talk about. Uh, or at least not much. We might touch on it. It's we not might the mention focus. it, yeah, but it's might, different. Yeah, we might touch on it. Uh, yeah, and then so there was a film adaptation by Frank Darabont, same guy that did Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile uh, in 2007, and then there was a really bad television series on Spike that got canceled in 2017 that was like based on the book, but not the book at all. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's I, you know why I haven't watched it? Because it's supposed to be fucking horrible. Okay. And I just, I, I don't have time. Yeah. You know? I mean, if something in in our busy lives, if something isn't reputationally at least above average, it's hard to fit it in. Although I will say this. <laughs> I do like some of the really crappy 80s Stephen King movies that he wrote and like directed. They're so bad, but they're bad in a good way. I get that. Yeah. So hit me up with your just general impressions, thoughts, feelings on the book. So funny enough, this is one of the books where I had actually seen the movie first. Uh, long story short, right before the pandemic, we had a friend staying with us who was, uh, who, who was cast in a show in Philly. And he knew we were big Stephen King fans. He knew we were doing the podcast. And he introduced me to the 2007 film. And I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I have never been more emotionally rocked at the end of a film at that time. It was a long time before I'd felt something like that. Um, but the book, I, I mean, I have to say, I loved it. I, I hands down loved it. I know I had a little bit of a harder time with Eyes of the Dragon. And this was like, oh, we're right back in the wheelhouse. Like, we're, we're right back in, in the place where I find Stephen King to thrive. Right? We've got everyday people who are playing archetypes in this small town in Maine. And again, I, I just think it, it proves, this book is proof that Stephen King is damn near perfect when it comes to writing real people in small town America. And dealing with extraordinary, supernatural, circumstances. bizarre circumstances. Yeah, yeah that yeah. they have to grapple with. And that's why you have these three distinct groups. One group's not going to believe it at all. <laughs> Screw that. One group is like, no, this is real. How do we survive? And another group who thinks, you know, it's from God. 
which is crazy. Yeah, with David's group, I called them rugged individualists. That's not really right. I think they're the survivalists. They're Absolutely. Like, we're going with the evidence. We don't need to understand. What we need to do is survive. No, and they're pragmatists. It's like, look at what's happening. Like, people are dying. Is that not enough for you? And that's a question that goes through my head in this book over and over and over again. So next follow-up question for you, then I'll give you my brief overview thoughts. With the books that we have read, including the Dark Tower series, where do you kind of rank or put this one? And I don't need a specific number. You know, you don't have to say like, I like this one over this one, but just like, just hit me with how did you overall feel? Would you rank this in the top, in the middle, or on the bottom? As of right now, I'd, I'd rank it in the top with, you know, a couple of the Dark Tower books, specifically uh, Wizard and Glass, which is still my favorite to this day, and It, and even Salem's Lot. Like, I would put it in the, up there with the classics of Stephen King. You know, like, Insomnia was a good book, and Eyes of the Dragon was a good book, but it's not... They're not up to the level, I think, of the... I mean, 165 pages. I was terrified the entire time. I read the book in two days. I couldn't put it down. I mean, I, I flew through it, and I felt so much, even though I had already known the story, because that 2007 version pretty much sticks to the book, except for the ending, and a couple things here and there. Um, so I would put it up, up at the top so far. I would agree. I think this is a classic work of American horror. It's a classic Stephen King postmodernist interpretation of small town America. Yeah. It has everything that makes King King. It is it is a page turner. It's up there. So my favorite book in the Dark Tower series is Wolves with a Kala. Mm-hmm. And this is up there with Wolves and It and The Mist, like and Salem's Lot. This is like when we are winding down and we are done with this project and said, okay, we've talked and read enough Stephen King. This one's still going to be at the top of the list for me. I feel. And you know, it's funny. My wife, Rebecca, for she read this book way before I did. Um, and she has told me over and over again, how much we were going to enjoy it and couldn't wait for us to actually read it and talk about it. And, And I think, I mean, I was, again, I was scared when reading this book. And I think I I've missed that since it, you know, like insomnia, there were moments of terror. The one moment in the library eyes of the dragon. There's not that much, you know, except for flag running up the steps with the giant ax. I mean, that's terrifying. But as far as like from page one to the last page, I was fearing for everyone's lives. Nobody was safe. Hit me with your scariest moment, if you can, or will. In the mist, I honestly, I think it's, I think it, I think it's the first time that we come in contact with uh, the tentacles and the scene with Norm. Uh, that would be the scariest supernatural piece for me. The scariest piece of the book for me is when Mrs. Carmody actually turns enough people onto her side to want to sacrifice David and and Billy specifically. That is horrific. And then Ollie shoots her. So good. We're going to dive deep into that. Ollie Weeks. Gunslinger Ollie Weeks. I would say my scariest moment, and this might be odd. I don't know if anyone listening would agree. 
It's when they are finally driving in the car and there is the six legged creature. Oh yeah. Who is walking across the highway whose legs are so huge. It's shaking the ground yet. They cannot see the body through the mist at all. Right. And to me that moment, one of the reasons it's so scary, it's that of all the monsters they've encountered, this one's so mammoth, it doesn't even notice them or care about them. Right. And to me, just the sheer terror that these characters are like, this is so much worse than we we could have ever imagined. But they don't even know if that thing's hostile or not. I mean, presumably, everything in the mist is. Well, sure. But it's also just something that big, and these characters being this small, to me, it it has such a, a pervasive sense of doom about their survival chances. They're like, this is so much worse than they could have thought. Yeah, for sure. And they're like, oh my goodness, I don't know. I, how If there are things like this that- What else is there? That could squash us like an insect. Like, like that's how huge and mammoth it is. We are in serious, serious trouble here. And I like the supernatural. I like when Stephen King dabbles in a bit of science fiction and a bit of supernatural and wraps it up all nice in a horror bow. You know, I I really enjoy when he does that. And this is definitely with the mention of the Arrowhead Project. I mean, there's absolutely no confirmation to anything in the book. There's no confirmation to what these creatures are, where they came from. We can assume that it's the Arrowhead Project. As soon as they're mentioned in the very beginning, I'm like, yep, they did it. They did it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that. Let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. But before we we go into that, I think... We'll, we'll do the next segment, and then I want to cycle back to that thought. Sure. Where, what do you think about this book in its relationship to the tower? What are some references? Oh. How do you think it relates? Where is this literally, metaphorically compared to the Dark Tower? Well, I, I, I don't think um, that it's much of a mystery why a lot of the people who voted on Twitter voted for this. Uh, because I think it's directly connected. Um, there's nothing in the book that mentions this, but my feeling on the mist is that the Arrowhead Project found a door to Midworld or to Endworld at this point. Or or to anywhere in the multiverse. And I really think that they probably landed on Ludd as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I've said that from the very beginning. And... I feel like they've opened up this door to this dimension and then all of a sudden this outbreak of creatures comes through. They can't stop it. It's overrun. That's my direct connection to the tower is that I think that these are creatures from Lud that we hear about in the Dark Tower. I think that there are some more metaphorical relations. Ollie Weeks being a gunslinger, I think is that you've got, a nut, you've got different groups of caltets who are willing to die based on their hill, you know? Um, and I think that, yeah, again, I, 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 the direct connection to me is that the Arrowhead Project has opened this door directly to Ludd. Can, and, can I, and that's what's come you, from this. Do you mean Ludd the city or the wastelands on the other side of Ludd? I mean, the, well, technically the wastelands on the other side of Ludd. That Blaine the Mono is, yeah. is driving through. Yeah. Cause you, yeah. And you know the storm that happens in Thunderclap? That, that mist that arises from that where everyone has to stay indoors for how many months or how many years or whatever, it feels like this is the exact same thing. I agree. I feel like 
when Stephen King got to these parts in the tower versus when he got to writing the mist, I feel like he is creating these callback, you know, as Blaine, the mono is traveling out of the, the city proper of Ludd and they're looking down into that chasm. There are just large monstrous prehistoric creature. You see those like pterodactyl like creatures basically is what they, is what they remind me of. And those creatures are kind of referenced that they come and grab those bugs Mm -hmm. in the first night scene when the bugs are sticking to the windows. Exactly. And I feel like those creatures bear a similarity that we know this being a shared universe. It is really easy for us to see that those creatures are likely the same. Now, whether or not Arrowhead found a door which I think that's a very valid interpretation. I I do read this that Arrowhead was messing with the multiverse some way or another. Sure. And their containment went down with the thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And then I and I think the King is telegraphing that to us with the rumors of Arrowhead mentioned very early. Yep. And then when the mist comes, the two soldiers commit suicide. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a dead giveaway. And I think to me that is, he is saying to us, yeah, the military was involved. And at some point, I think, I don't know if it's David or Ali, Ali when they're talking or thinking, or like, what if these are from another dimension? Yeah. That is mentioned uh, at some point in the text too. So I, I really think you hit the nail on the head. Well, there's this also this just kind of cheeky moment that, that King puts in where he's, um, he's like describing the sound of something, or he's describing uh, the rarity of something, and he says, you know, like the sound of a rose. And I was like, oh, you cheeky bastard. Oh, you don't think I don't oh, have those you? quotes marked? Uh, <laughs> oh, I've got quotes marked here. Of course you do. <laughs> Why would I yeah. think otherwise? <laughs> oh, yeah. I I'm, should know by now. I'm going to bring that up once, once it's my turn to talk about the tower. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, but I do, I do agree, whether it's a literal door or they're poking uh, into the multiverse somehow with technology, which we know is possible mm-hmm. because the old ones made doors. So you know that technology yeah. can do that. And whether they like punctured, they were trying to go to another universe yeah, it, and they hit Todash. That's kind of what I mean, right? It's and, not necessarily, you know, like, and I always say it incorrectly. And then you bring up the Todash space every time we talk about this. And I think it's smart because they don't necessarily mean they're like, nope, they hopped on a door. But you know how like when, when Roland is, is with the Magi and they literally find, they're like, oh, we uncovered this, this door. You know, in the middle of the mountain, it, it reminds me of that. It's like they're working on something. They're maybe they're digging, maybe they're they're excavating something, and they find this dimensional door that's you know in this space, and they've been fucking with it for however long, and boom, the thunderstorm comes around, ignites whatever. Maybe it, yeah, like you said, maybe maybe the, the 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 building goes up in flames. Boom, it unlocks this this door, and then all of a sudden we're screwed. And, and then all hell breaks loose. So tell but, me, what are but, your, I mean, what are your thoughts? But the important thing is, I guess this is going into what is the mist, is that it is human created to a degree. Yeah, and definitely. I think that is important when we talk about what it all means. Um, so a few things that I highlighted that I thought were very Tower-esque. Um, you mentioned the formation of Katets. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that Billy, Amanda, Ali, David, they are all in a Katet. And what's the old woman's name? Are you referring to the third grade teacher, Mrs. Repler? Mrs. Repler. Let me read a quote here. I moved toward it. My torch was guttering, but not yet out. But Mrs. Repler, the third grade teacher, beat me to it. She was maybe 55, maybe 60, rope thin. Her body had a tuft, dried out look that always made me think of beef jerky. 
She had a can of raid in each hand, like some crazy gunslinger in an existential comedy. Mm-hmm. She uttered a snarl of anger that would have done credit to a caveman splitting the skull of an enemy. Holding the pressure cans out in full length of each arm, she pressed the buttons. A thick spray of insect killer coated the thing. It went into throes of agony, twisting and turning crazily, and at last falling from the bags, bouncing off the body of Tom Smalley, who was dead beyond any doubt or question, and finally landing on the floor. So the the reason I highlight that quote, it's from the first night that they are there. It's when the bugs are killing Tom. So Mrs. Reepler comes out and is a gunslinger in an existential comedy. Oh, yeah. And one thing that I, I think of, I think of what makes a gunslinger. And a gunslinger is almost like an archetype that people can channel. Mm-hmm. Like if you tap into the gunslinger energy, you become a gunslinger. Yeah. And you, are only, you can only temporarily steward the gunslinger because the gunslingers will live on right. even when you perish. And in this moment, a third grade teacher can step to it. And a, she's, and she's mon- pretty old. A monster. I mean, he says that her skin reminds him of beef jerky. And she can gunsling her with a can of Raid to stop <laughs> a lighter. An, uh, an, you know, <laughs> to stop an insect from insects from eating people. Yeah. And I thought that was, that was a great reference to direct reference to gunslinger. Well, and you know, it, it's interesting that you bring up the, the, this kind of energy that people can tap into being the gunslinger energy. Because what I've noticed is, is that a lot of times it's people who are brave enough to step into that role in that moment. It's not necessarily whether or not they're the best with a gun because you don't know Ollie weeks. He's been to a range a few times, you know, he knows how to shoot. He mentions, yeah, I got a 22, whatever, but it's, it's people who step up in the moment and choose to think with their heart, you know, and choose to think with their mind. And not they don't aim with their hand. You know what I mean? The whole gunslinger code. It's about that code. It's not necessarily that I become a gunslinger because I'm the best with a gun. I think I become a gunslinger a lot like Eddie Dean and a lot like Jake in certain situations where the moment brings out the gunslinger in that person. And if they're brave enough to take that moniker and step up and save what they love... That's really what it is. It's a moment of like choosing to save something because that is the right thing to do. In a moment when so many people are rightfully panicking. Yes. And rightfully losing all semblance of self and throwing out all conventions, there are those who will step to the plate and say, in this moment, I am going to become heroic. And they see clear-minded. It's just clear. There's no thought to it. It's a decision that needs to be made, and I am the one that needs to make it. And David, Ali, and this third grade teacher all rise to this moment and decide, you know what? We're going to approach this situation in a gunslinger way. There's also a little bit of wisdom to it. Absolutely. And I think David has this wisdom in which he's able to think strategically when other people are trying to think either spiritually, as in Mrs. Camerody, or as in Mr. Norton, they're trying to think rationally. And I think if there's one thing that Stephen King always described Roland as is the conflict between rationality and emotion. Absolutely. And him living in the middle. Right in the middle. Yep. And David is very much like that. Ollie is like that. <laughs> Mrs. Repler is like yeah. that. 
Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Good call out. One other um, quote I'll bring here that reminded me of the tower. Terror is the widening of perspective and perception. The horror was in knowing I was swimming down to a place most of us leave when we get out of diapers and into training pants. I could see it on Ollie's face too. When rationality begins to break down, the circuits of the human brain can overload. Axons grow bright and feverish. Hallucinations turn real. The quicksilver puddle at the point where perspective makes parallel lines seems to intersect is really there. The dead walk and talk. A rose begins to sing. Yeah. Yeah. This and is, that's also that mentality. Th- you stop thinking rationally and you start thinking in that moment. Deliberately, a rose begins to sing is about channeling the tower Ex- itself. Yes. And that when you uh, are in that gunslinger moment, when you are at that point where nothing can save you but swift action, where the dead can walk, perspective and hallucination are blurred the rose begins to sing and you just act. Well, and also the other thing is I, Mrs. Carmody reminds me of the, you know, the woman who's the interloper, the interloper. Sylvia. Oh gosh. Sylvia Pittston is Thank her name. You. Yes. yes. Yeah. And so it reminds me of, of that character, that religious fanatic that has just taken this town over by storm. And I mean, that's how she starts the book. The first thing that woman says is the word death. She screams the word death. Yo, if I'm around her in that supermarket with this Muay Thai now, I'd be like, eh, let's kick her through the freezer aisle section. This is crazy. Okay, so we agree there's a lot of tower references. We're going to casually move around the fact that Steve talked about, you know, <laughs> kicking an old woman. Dude, all these shoots her. Only at the last resort. Ah, come on. She's, she's poison. So, but we do agree. Yes, she is. Well, let, let, well, let me pivot that to the next segment here. I want to really dive into what we think this all means and where we can start to like kind of more deeply analyze the events specifically in the mist. And I'll put this out there. I put this thread on Twitter. I don't know if Stephen King wants us to heavily analyze his work. Because I think Stephen King, like you mentioned, he was just in a grocery store and dreamed about what would happen if prehistoric monsters attacked us. Let me just write that. But I can't help but thinking there is some deeper meaning and symbolism in this narrative. And I really want to unpack it. So you mentioned, hey, in this scenario, it's probably the best thing to do is to dropkick Mrs. Carmody. You know, like, (laughs) look, I only meant that. Because she has literally advocated for human sacrifice and is going to sacrifice a five-year-old boy. All right? I don't, want, I don't want listeners out there thinking that I'm just going to abuse old women because, you know, I don't, I don't agree with them. She is certifiably insane and tries to sacrifice a child. Steve just peruses supermarkets looking for old women to kick. <laughs> Trust me. No, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, obviously. Yeah. You were kidding. Obviously. We all know that. You know, and if you you don't know that listening, he's never kicked an old woman as far as <laughs> never, I know. Never, never. Yeah. Not yet. Probably never would. Not unless yet. it's Mrs. Carmody. Well, unless in it's which, Mrs. Carmody, I'm taking her down. In which it's okay. And I just made that defense again. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, so I, I do think, I think there's a lot of different 
angles to tackle analysis. So one, mist does some pretty, like an actual event of mist. It limits light. It limits our ability to see. It limits our ability to predict where we are going. And to perceive reality. As we're moving through space, we aren't able to see. In that lack of seeing, there are literal monsters. Now, it's it's worth noting that when David has encountered, he arguably encounters more of the monsters and lives than any other character. I don't think that's arguable. I think that's literal. He encounters the tentacle monster. Mm-hmm. He encounters the spiders. Mm-hmm. He encounters the bugs and birds. He goes in uh, into the pharmacy. So he's encountered these a lot. He's defeated a lot of them. And he, he says, I didn't mark the quote, that they are just creatures. They're not actual supernatural monsters. They're just big. They're vicious. But they're acting more like animals on instinct mm-hmm. than they are acting in a way that would be like Pennywise, who is a malicious entity, or Mordred, or the man in black. Right. Right? All of these other malicious entities designed to do evil, they're just existing in this mist in their environment. Because he realizes that, he recognizes how it works, and it's based around smell. That gives him a strategy to, one, leave the store and make it to the restaurant to write this story. So his strategy is ultimately successful. Mm-hmm. It is smell. They are animals hunting. They are insects hunting. They aren't monsters in the Pennywiseian sense, right? Though they're pretty monstrous. So because of that, I I can't help thinking that it being in a supermarket, it being in a place where people consume, and that the way that the situation unfolds collectively, that there is this um, metaphor, there is this acknowledgement that the people who are pragmatic, who don't need to understand what's happening, but just want to survive, that don't need to pray away their sin, that are just motivated to survive for survival's sake, end up taking the calculated risk that staying with the fanatics after the flat earthers all kill themselves is more dangerous than the mist and the unknown. Oh, yeah. In other words, people are a greater threat than the unknown monsters of the mist. I feel like that is something that we should meditate on. Absolutely. I think it's a common theme through Stephen King's writings. I mean, especially in this book. You know, I mean, my question to you before we started recording was, you know, we read the, the, for the quote at the beginning of the, of the episode is the very last few paragraphs of the book. And I've been just thinking about this concept of like, why hope? What is hope in terms of human survival? Is it just another survival technique where we have to hope that there's something out there living or something out there to live for is the reason why we have to survive. Because truly ask yourself if you Derek were in this situation, just you let's, you know, take your family out of the equation. It's just you as a human being that needs to survive. Like what would you do? in the situation of the mist, would you stay at the supermarket? Would you try to survive? Would you just be like, nah, fuck it. It's, this is over. We're not going to survive this. Like, what is it about the human condition that makes us believe in hope? Because hope is not a tangible thing. It's a feeling. 
It's not, hope is something, at least this is, this is what this book makes me think of hope and what it means is that in, in, the, in, in this lens, hope is a means of survival. If I'm going to survive, I have to think there's something on the other end. Well, we are, according to early psychoanalysis, works by Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, we are programmed psychologically via birth, which is likely genetically passed down to us, to have the death anxiety, the fear of death, and that is the like central to our fight and flight, according to psychoanalysis. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so this is a layman's version. I took Psych 101 and read a bunch of Freud and Carl Jung books in my free time, so I'm by no means an expert on it. But this is central to our fight or flight mechanism, that when we have danger, we will instinctively either flee or we'll go into fight mode. It's the death anxiety that drives that. So there's, on one level, there's danger in the moment. Do I fight or do I flight? And in this book, we see we see that happening to a few different characters. And the characters more likely to respond, and that's, that's just a response to stimuli, right? That's not, that's like a stimulation has a reaction. That's like, my hand is on the burner, the burner's turned on, I'm burned, I remove my hand. That's how fight and flight is supposed to work as far as I understand it. So the characters that go into fight mode are David, they're Ollie, they're Mrs. Reepler, right? The characters that go into flight mode are trampling old ladies on the way back to their store. What we see in this book is more people go into flight than fight, which is to me also a commentary that more people are reacting socially, like everyone else is fleeing, so I'm going to flee too. And the few people that go into fight mode are the people that end up siding with our hero and end up leaving with our hero, even though most of them end up dying doing that. Or, so I think there's that. Or they're on the religious side. But so the religious side, and this is so like, this is going to sound weird, but if you've studied philosophy in any way or shape or form, which I have not, the religious reaction is fundamentally a rational reaction. Not saying the beliefs that they espouse are rational, but it is an attempt to create and exert some level of control over the situation through the power of faith. It's a rational response where fight and flight is instinctual. Mm-hmm. Religious formation in, at least as it's done in this book is fundamentally rational. I'll give you an example that happens in the book in a microcosm when we talk about the rationality and it's the same thing that happens to Mrs. Carmody. So David looks for a blanket for his son He goes in and he sees the generator is backed up. He turns it off because he's smelling the fumes. And then he he hears a monster outside. He gets scared. And then we have Jim, Myron, and Norm come in. And Jim, Myron, and Norm are like, no, Norm, you go out there and clear it. It leads to Norm's death. They are attempting for a rational response. And whether it's Ollie or David, I forget which, they say, I get it. This is the one thing they can control so they're going to control it. However, they end up making a sacrifice of a young person for the sake of the rational response. The, the need to control is itself rational, mm-hmm. right? So they are doing it calculated. They're doing it collectively, collected, collectively, pardon me, and they're doing it rationally. This is the same sort of framework 
of Mrs. Kermody. There's all of these crazy monsters. Clearly, these monsters make her think of the Old Testament, and her rational response is blood sacrifice appeased the monsters in the ancient world according to this book. And what does she want to do? She wants to sacrifice a young person to appease the monster. And it's telling that Jim, who sacrificed Norm, is right there with her mm-hmm. at this point. So that well, same that same in, that same instinct to want to control, which is juxtaposed to David, who isn't trying to control the situation at all. Right? Would you would you say that both the religious side and the flat earther side are manipulative? Because I, to me, they're taking advantage of people's fears. To one side with the religious side, her saying, obviously, this is God. This is, for, for, this is payback for all of the sins of the people who live here and don't live here. And then you have, you have you know, Norton, who's basically like, no, this isn't real. This is insane. You're crazy. Clearly, you're crazy. I want the people who are thinking rationally to come with me. To me, it's almost a form of manipulation. It's definitely about power. Absolutely. Which, again, comes from manipulating people who are powerless. It's definitely about power. And you have two people known in the community. Mr. Norton, the New York out-of-town lawyer, who's going to be a judge someday. He's a big shot. He's a big deal. Everybody looks at him with respect. And Mrs. Kermody, the town soothsayer, fortune teller, the person that's got one foot into the ancient spiritual world and one foot into the modern world. So they're both respected in their own sort of philosophical domains. Now, Mrs. Kermody is a spiritualist, is an Old Testament religious fanatic, versus Norton, whose belief is in enlightenment, rational, moral, legal principles. And so both of them having these philosophical tent poles saying, this is who we are and we're not willing to budge, ends up being the banners that everyone... like. Whether or not it's manipulative, manipulative has a connotation that it's almost like they're they're villains. To them, I think they are they are they are the heroes in their story. They are not they are not trying to lie, even if what they're espousing is untrue. Right? So the Flat Earth Society, they 100 percent believe that this is about survival, it's about being rational, monsters aren't real, there's possible and impossible. What you're saying is impossible, so we're going to go with what's possible. That's a rational response. The The religious spiritualists are like, listen, we've read the Old Testament. There's lots of monsters out there. They are appeased through blood sacrifice. That's what's going to happen. Once the flat earthers are gone, the only other tent pole left is Mrs. Carmody. And people are going to rally. Like, if there's no flag people are going to rally around the only flag that's left. Well, that's why I say it's manipulative because she knows what she's doing. She knows that she's gathering all of these people to fulfill some weird, strange religious thing. It's only manipulative in the, in the most negative connotative way. Yeah. Like if we're like, if we're like a, we're like a politician, like Donald Trump, Ugh. I hate to bring that up, my but if, if you're out there sitting there saying, I love the Bible, it's my favorite book, vote for me, that's blatantly manipulative. If you are being a con man, 
I don't see Mrs. Kermody as a con man. No. Yes, y- yes, it is. It is. It is de facto manipulation. Yeah. But I don't think she disbelieves what she's saying. No, and I Whereas, don't think manipulation needs to be part of disbelief, though. I think manipulation can come from somebody who truly believes what they're feeling. But it's like, well, I've got, I have all these powerless people. They're going to come and listen to me, you know? But I also hear what you're saying. I don't think it's, she's not trying to trick anyone. She believes this shit, 100%. Yeah. It's not like the, the snake oil salesman. No, she's devout. Right? Yeah. But she is, in her devout nature, she is inherently manipulating a shitload of weak and scared people. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And it is it is a form. There is So there are the snake oil salesmen. There's the Donald Trumps who say they believe a thing, but they're just saying it. They to, don't give a fuck. Yeah. But there is nothing scarier than the fanatic, the yes. devotee. The person that really believes what they're saying. Who will die for their cause. Or kill someone else for it. And they will see nothing in between. And both Norton, Mr. Norton, and you know, Miss Carmody are different versions of the same coin. I mean, that's why I brought it up as one of the scariest parts of the book for me. Because when she, I mean, she's got a group of like 15 or 20 people that actively want to sacrifice a five-year-old innocent child. Now, look, you have, you have a toddler. Uh, my wife is pregnant. Now, you know, reading this book as a, as a prospective father, that's fucking horrifying. Dude, I, I got to tell you, if I were David, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, he's smarter. He, he is a smarter person than I. And and definitely is like, you know what? Instead of staying here and causing more trouble, I need to get my son out of here. And you know what? That's probably how I would react if I had a five-year-old. You know, I'm still a person who, I mean, my baby's the size of an artichoke this week. <laughs> so like, but, but for somebody like you, I mean, I, I, you know, when we watched the movie, I spent a lot of time watching you watch the film because I knew, well, we both knew the connection between Big Bill Another shout out to a lot of uh, a lot of other characters um, in Stephen King. But what watching it like when you see that as a parent, you know, I mean, David tries everything. All he wants is a blanket for his son, and comes upon this horror show. So anyway, but to get I mean, back to the manipulation, I mean, I that's why it's the scariest part in the book for me because anybody that that is so willing to believe that God is real enough to sacrifice a child. That's why she's an old Testament Christian and not a new Testament Christian. People that believe in Jesus. Don't believe in that shit. Well, literally you're not supposed to God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. Yeah. And then in the last moment says, like, no, 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 no. Oh, now that you're willing to kill your son, nah, great. you don't have to do that. All I need to know is that you're willing to kill the son. Talk about manipulation. So here's a goat. So sacrifice <laughs> the goat. So instead. here's a goat. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that literally happens in no, the Bible. I know, I know. It's just so fun. So here's a goat. Oh, you didn't sacrifice your kid. Here's a goat. We need to reconcile. And I think a thing that I, at least I take it from this is we need to reconcile with how ancient and how, fundamentally um, ruthless our ancient religious principles are that as they echo into the modern, they can be used as a flag or a tent pole or as a rallying point for the Mrs. Carmody's to be like, listen, 
There's monsters walking the earth. There's only one thing that makes the monsters happy. It's blood. So let's give them blood. Well, and that's why that religious fanaticism is dangerous. Because they are. Because you can. In, in any religion, fanaticism but, is dangerous. Because you can just take words and say, well, they came from God's mouth. So clearly this is true. But so is the fanaticism of Mr. Norton. Yes. Who says, uh-uh, I'm not following in with you locals. He's an irrational rationalist. I am a rationalist. We're going to go get help. There are no monsters. I will not accept this. And even though the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah, he has no reason to believe that this is not real. There are multiple people. Now, look, not believing David because of their conflict in the beginning of the book, you know, with with Norton's tree falling over into the shed and like the problems that David and and Brendan have had. But the truth is, is like there's no reason for, for, for Brendan not to believe these people. And multiple people have told him, look, this shit is real. It's real. We've seen it with our own eyes. Why would we lie to you? Well, why? Because I'm an out-of-towner, and I'm a big-shot lawyer, and I feel like you distrust me. And also, if you want to test if the mist has monsters or not, you have a whole butcher shop. Throw a pork shop out there and see what happens. Right. Do you have to lead all of the people out? Like, be like, okay, Enough people tell me there's a monster. Let me at least test this and see if Let's I can try see it. one for myself. If like if I I I would probably be Mr. Norton at this and be like monsters. All right, this is bad, but monsters. All right, let's take let's throw some let's throw some ground beef out there. Let's see if we can see a monster, people. But then and then but when then you see you the monster, it. you're like, oh, that's a monster. But like, right, right, because he doesn't really see anyone attacked. They're already gone by the time that they prove. And he refuses to go in the back and look at the tentacle, too. So his belief, his his prejudice about it's me versus the townies is so powerful that it overrides his ability to think clearly. And because he is such a powerful and successful person in non-mist world, he he becomes a leader in this world and he gets a lot of people killed. Well, and it's, I mean, you, you know, David mentions to him a couple times, like, look, this isn't a courtroom. You're not winning over a side. Like, we're surviving. People are dying. And yet, there are two humans who really want to prove their point. And, you know, to be completely honest, why, like, why would you want to be that convinced that this is not happening? Why would David lie about Norm being viciously killed. Why would somebody lie about that? Because you have a fucking insurance dispute? Look, you're an insurance agent. I'm about to be in insurance. It makes no sense. That makes no fucking sense. That is not an argument to die on. That like, oh, you're just pissed off at me. Because, you know, I'm an asshole neighbor. And that's why you're telling me that Norm the bag boy was ripped apart and killed. Come on, man. That's frustr- That part of the book, sorry, I know I got a little, little heated there, but like that part of the book drives me nuts when somebody is so vehement that they are right with absolutely no evidence. It's what drives me nuts about fucking crazy right-wing nuts. 
You know, it's, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to get political, but it's what drives me nuts about having conversations with people like that is that it's like, I am right no matter the fucking circumstance. I don't care if a kid died. I don't care. He's got nothing to do with me and you can't prove it. And I, you're not going to make me feel crazy. I'm just going to walk out into the fucking mist. Well, there's a reason King calls them the flat earth society. Exactly. That they have, they, they have come to a conclusion and they are working backwards from the conclusion instead of looking at what's happening and letting that reach a conclusion. Famous quote here from a sci-fi legend. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable is the truth. Yep. It's a quote from Spock, but it's a good way to understand the the, the basic epistemology or knowledge system. How do we know what we know? Well, what Mr. Norton, what Brenton Norton is doing is saying, I know how the world works because I am a lawyer. I am successful. I am intelligent. I know this town. And, and I'm I, rational. And I'm going to work backwards from what I already know. Well, that is the same type of people who said, uh, you're telling me, Galileo, the world's round. I know how the world works. I've studied it. It is not round, and you are not allowed to bring up a new piece of evidence that can challenge these core assumptions. And, you know, my, my one question for somebody like Brendan Norton, for being such an intelligent person, for being a person who is relied on to judge other people, right? I mean, his job is to read, to, to, to defend people, and now he's about to become a judge, on some of the highest courts in Maine, or New York, really, not even Maine. And to me, somebody who has that power, who's that good at judgment, but is not willing to see for themselves what another person is telling them, look, this is I've seen it with my own eyes. I can show it to you. Well, no, I refuse. I refuse because that's not rational. And to me, that is the kind of soup that missed, if you will, that King is playing with, with these characters where he is showing us in many ways what a lot of people do One confronted with the strange and unusual. One confronted... So in, you asked what gives you hope. That's what question that you asked. Yeah. But if we revert backwards and say, let's assume most people want to survive when confronted with terrible circumstances... And if we assume that they want to survive, the question is, what do we do with untreated strangeness? What do we do when we don't have the answers? Like the unknown. And I think that is a bigger question, at least from the sociological point of view of this mm -hmm. book. And there are three distinct answers. Yeah. An answer from Norton is go by your tried and true legal principles. Right. The world is fundamentally material. You have ruled out possible and impossible, and you cannot see anything else. Number number two is Mrs. Carmody, whose the world is governed and controlled by transcendental, godlike, mystical forces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if those forces are angry at us, they are responsible for and our misfortune. And she is speaking directly through God. And then, well, she comes to believe she is the prophet. Yeah. Yes. In her... So... Both her and Mr. Norton share one common character flaw, and it's grandiosity. Yes. 
they believe they know better than others. Mm -hmm. They be, like in many ways to Mrs. Car Carmody, this is the best thing that's ever happened to her. 100%. She is really into this new role. She's practiced her power. whole life for this role. This is her 15 minutes of fame. Yep. And so, so that is the, the common glue between both of those in the middle there. You have the survivalists. You have those that are willing to look at the evidence, make conclusions, and they are working small to big. They don't know the big picture, and they're not afraid of it. Versus Carmody and Norton, who are like, I know the big picture, and I'm going to work backwards. And to me, there is a sociological cautionary tale, especially living in an era of global pandemic of global climate change and of the steadfast rising of right wing, you know, fascism that is in, at least in America and in some other countries in the West, heavily religiously inspired religious right wing fascism to be like, Hey, let's just take it small. Let's deal with, let's deal with one problem and see what that is. And let's come up with some pragmatic solutions. Instead, we see no, 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 no. This is about me and my grandiosity and what I already know in my big picture. And I will bend the world to my picture rather than deal with the evidence that's right in front of me. It's more important that the earth is flat and I'm right than it is that people live. And again, this book is 40 years old. It was written in 1980. And we see a lot of the same archetypal characters today. You know, I... I Again, it's one of the things that I think King does best is that he really points out both the flaws and the successes of human nature. And that's why I asked the question about hope. You know, hope is one of those things that me personally, I haven't decided on. I, I don't know if it's real. I know it drives us as human beings. I mean, again, becoming a parent Everything that I believe is in question right now. And so reading The Mist before having a child in the process of becoming a parent was very interesting. I had a different mentality reading this book than any other Stephen King book we've read. And I really mean that, especially that connection with, with David and Billy. And like, just thinking to myself, if I were David, if I was stuck in the supermarket with my five-year-old, what would I do? And I would love to believe that I would make the choices that David makes or Ollie. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I can't put myself in this situation clearly, but I thought about that a lot while reading this. Like if this were me and because I think the book is so short and everything happens so quickly, there's time to think about that. But like, if it were me, what would I do? Which group would I be a part of? Well, you asked the question about hope, and I, I want to say that I think, and, and about fatherhood and parenthood, I mean, to me, being a parent is inherently hopeful. You, you have a child, you hope you're a good parent, you hope that you get your, your child into a good school where they can learn, you hope that that child can learn right from wrong, and you hope that ultimately your child can surpass you in life. And I don't just mean that in the material sense, but in the, in the spiritual 
and moral and aesthetic sense. And in our social sense. You know, that they, they, are, they understand right and wrong better than I do. They understand beauty and truth better than I do. So, like, having a child is fundamentally hopeful. And it's worth noting that, you know, David is inspired by and motivated by helping his son. And that's sort of the anchor of his allies. A lot of his allies are helping him, and they're helping Billy, and they're trying to help this. At the very beginning of the story, when the mist first comes, there's a parent who takes a leap of hope and walks into the mist by herself to go back to her children. So I think hope in this story and in my personal experience and parenthood are deeply linked because it's different than faith. And in in, in this, at least in this book, in can, a, you in ex- a, can you explain your, even if it's not in the concept of the book, the way that you differentiate faith and hope? So faith is, it is about something that you believe no matter what. Faith is the idea of something, it is religious specifically, so like, or spiritual. Having faith says that I have a transcendental connection to a biggerness. Now that could be, I have faith in humanity because we all have souls and souls come from God. I have faith that there is a God. I have faith that X, Y, and Z, but it's, it, it, is, it is transcendental in its nature and it is about some type of a greater power, mm-hmm. right? At least if you take the term in a philosophical sense, because you can colloquially interchange them. Like I have faith that a drunk driver is not going to hit me when I walk out my door today. Right. You know, I have hope that like, so colloquially they can be interchanged, but philosophically they're different in the respect that faith is about a higher power. It has a spiritual or religious context. Hope is more um, grounded in, in some semblance of reality. Mm -hmm. You don't need a transcendental power, whether it's the force, Buddha, Jesus, etc. You know, I don't have... Really love that you led with the force. Yes. Just want to put that out there. Thank you. I don't have hope that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Right. I you know, know it it's will. Gonna. Right. I have hope that the sun's not going to crash into the earth or the yeah. earth is not going to crash into the sun. Sure. Like, sure. I don't know that the sun won't turn into a black hole tomorrow. I don't know that. I really hope it won't. And I have hope that it won't. And I have hope because, hey, we've studied suns. We've studied mm-hmm. black holes. Mm-hmm. We know a little bit about them. That suggests they operate based on this pattern. Can I ask you another question? Go for it. Do you think that hope is a driving human factor? And the reason that I ask that is because of the end of the book. You know, David hears those two words, Hartford, obviously the place they want to get to, and hope. And is hope, I mean, my main, the thing I just keep coming back to is is hope a driving factor for humanity, in your opinion? And also, slash, why? As you know, as all the listeners know, my great intellectual joy in my life has been the study of history. Oh, really? I have once <laughs> commented to a fellow history student in the throes of my undergraduate degree, saying studying history is, in many ways, the study of human suffering. Because there's a lot of history and not a lot of it's good. 
And even the good stuff like the Roman Empire, the Western European Enlightenment, man, there's a lot of bad happening during both of those periods. Absolutely. Just to name it two. The foundation of the American Republic. That's what I was going to say. Love it. Lots of bad happening all at the same time. But to answer your question more succinctly and less verbosely, yes, I do. I believe that human history is a history of fundamental hope. And the reason why is I've read the accounts of Kenyan survivors of the Gulag under the British Empire in the Mau Mau Revolution. I've studied about what people enslaved did to maintain and propagate their identity when society said, you have no identity and you're not even a human being. I've read what happened in the camps of the the Nazis and how people banded together despite the immense suffering to endure and to survive. And I've read the story of David Drayton and Billy Drayton. And I think the, the guiding light of why humanity is worth fighting for, it's because we have hope. And it's because that we necessarily should hope for us to be better. And even when we falter and we fail, as we are more prone to do than succeed, even in our brightest moments, there's a lot of darkness un- like happening with those bright moments at the Absolutely. same time. 100%. There is still an incredible reason to believe in hope. To quote, um, this is a quote that was by Martin Luther King Jr. and said a lot by Barack Obama, the long arc of history bends towards justice. Why? There's a follow-up to that that needs to be asked. It's because people have hope. That's why it bends towards justice. And if Barack Obama, a descendant of a slave, as a president of a country founded on slavery, can say that, I have to believe. You know what's funny? I... Coming from a cynic in me, you, you always have a great way of, of changing my mind. And, and that's why, but truly, that's why I ask these questions. But it's funny, again, reflecting, becoming a parent, I can feel my cynicism slowly dying. And I can feel the reason why I ask the question, hope, oh, I might get emotional, is because I now have hope. In humanity, bro. When because like when you hold like, your like baby, when I when I hold your baby, I have hope. They're a blank slate. The that evils of humanity do not come intrinsically from our existence. They are placed there by structures, institutions, and individuals. No, and in a weird way, being around your son in these early months has started that change in me because everybody knows. I mean, you li- listen to this podcast. I mean, I've, I've talked about me being a cynic. I've talked about my wife talking about me being a cynic and that is changing. And, and when I read this book, I, f- I understood why David does what he does. What would I do? What does my son need? I would fight all the monsters for my baby at Arthur. the end. Of, exactly. All of them. A hundred percent. Now the death. 
if you would have asked me this question six months ago, I might have had a different response. But like now, I would do anything. I love it. And, my, right. and my baby's the size of an artichoke, <laughs> right? Like we're, we haven't even met this child yet, and, and I feel that. One last question, because we're going over our even our usual long Well, this time. is a great book. It is a great book. And I don't even feel like we scratched the surface. No. But one last question. We watched the movie, the 2007 movie, and it tacked on an ending. And that ending was brutal. If Ugh. you've seen the movie, spoiler alert if you haven't, Ugh. where they get to the point where the car runs out of gas and they have just enough bullets for everyone to kill themselves Ugh. except for David. God. So David... Kills everyone that he loves, including his son. Ugh. He steps out of the car to have a monster of the mist eat him, only to find that they were just minutes away from the army coming, and presumably as they kill the monsters, burning away the mist. Now look, my opinion on this, again, comes from the fact that I saw the movie first. Right? I did not read the book first. I will admit that. That ending... <laughs> It's brutal. Dude, as an actor alone. But hold on. That's not my question. No, I know. My question is, for you, if you were to imagine this book ends on the word hope, they're still in a restaurant, we don't know what happens next. If you were God of King World and could decide what happens next for David and Billy, what would be next for you? Look, in the terms of Stephen King, I don't think they survive. I don't. I don't think they'd make it to Hartford. I really don't. I, and, and that's, this is why I fight. I just had this whole talk about cynicism and it's not even, it's not even cynical. I just feel that like the evidence that we have been given about how dangerous this is, get to fucking Hartford. If you can, I mean, it's Stephen King. Like, I don't think they make it. I think this is it. I think they leave that diner. And th this can be the only chance that anybody's going to ever fucking know what the hell happened if somebody comes into this diner and finds these napkins that he's written on. Truthfully, I, I mean, call me a cynic, but but I don't I don't think anybody makes it. I think the evidence in the book is pretty overwhelming that they're doomed. Yeah, and that's why the monster with the six legs is so terrifying yes. to me. Because that's, to me, telegraphed like, this is bigger than you thought. <sighs> We're fucked. The monsters are worse than you thought. You have no chance at survival, by the way. And look, the ending of the film, for anybody that's seen it, it is effective. You could not make, if you ask me as, as a dramatist, as an actor, it would be very difficult to sell the ending of the book in a movie. You've spent two hours watching these people suffer. It would be really hard for them to get to a diner and be like, well, we're going to see what happens. I agree. You know, so they had to do something. Now, spoiler alert. For, again, we've already told, like, like, David shoots everybody in the car. And they all, what's really interesting about the moment in the movie is that they all, except for, uh, this is the hardest one, except for Billy, they all realize what's going to happen. They know. And you're not going to leave Billy alone. You're not going to kill yourself and leave your five-year-old to fucking figure it out. Right? Oh, I... I uh, right? I mean... I, oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems cruel. And when I first saw the movie, I mean, as an actor, dude, I was crushed. I, literally, okay, this is the story real quick. The, I, know, I know we're over time, but I have to tell this story. So at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> is when... Right before the pandemic is when I saw this film. And on the same night, I sat 
in the, on the couch that we watched this on for 15 minutes after this movie was finished and just cried. I cried my fucking eyes out. I was horrified. I could not believe that a director put me through that. Truly, I was pissed off. I was furious at the director and the writer. How fucking dare you put me through that? Right? And then 20 minutes after that, we watched the movie Cats, (laughs) which started my entire pandemic. But like the reason why is it made me feel like I can't move. So I think the end of the movie is effective, though it might be a little cheap. I'm not going to give it away because I actually want people to watch it. Because I, I think Frank Darabont's a really great director. But so like, you, you, you liked the end? But, well, I, but that, I did. But the question at the end is, what do you think actually happens in the book? And you think we both agree that... Yeah, you, I don't think they make it. I don't think they make it either. But here's where I disagree with you. I think the story lives on. Because we're reading this book. Yeah. And there's a level of... Stephen King believes in the power of the written word. And he believes that the written word can literally move the multiverse. And somebody's going to survive, but it's not going to be the Draytons. I don't think the Draytons make it, but I do think whenever this is gained under control, whatever happens, somebody is reading, whether that's us in our world, in our dimension, the story, the act of writing down the story has intrinsic value and will be read by someone. Yeah, I agree with that. And to me, that's the hope. Even if you can endure and survive, your story can live on. Man. Fuck. That's that's beautiful. That is beautiful, Derek. Thank you. I mean, seriously, think about all the horrible things that happened in this book. And my first question in your living room before we before we started this was like, what is hope? Why are we as humans? Why do are we so attracted to it? And I think that's why. I love it. God damn it. What else you got, man? We're, nothing. We're, well, I got nothing else. Oh, we have one thing. One thing. So we have decided we're not going to do a poll for the next book. Derek and I are both jonesing, and I'm sure a lot of people want to read it anyway because it had like 39% on the, on the, on the uh, poll. We are now diving into Stephen King's classic the stand. I'm really excited. I'm hype. It's, it's probably going to be two episodes. It's, it's going to be two episodes. It might be three. It it's might. It's fucking huge. But it's not as big as it. Oh, okay. It is a bigger book. Can you believe that? Actually, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've read it, it. It, it fucking <laughs> felt like it took five years of my life. So really excited. If you are going to read with us, pick up your copy of the stand. Now we'll be starting um, ASAP. And we are reading the, uh, it's not the first edition that he, re- that he wrote. It's the revised edition, uh, which is apparently more of what Stephen King wanted. So it's a little longer, but it's like the second or third edition of the book for anybody that wants to get super nerdy with us. Love it. And, uh, long days, pleasant nights, long days and pleasant nights. <laughs>